Futurize goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur. Join me as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, or the future of work. On the show, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption, so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. In this conversation, um, on episode 128 of the podcast, the topic is the future of policing, and our guest is Rahul Sidhu, co-founder and CEO at Spider Tech. In this conversation, they talk about police reform, law enforcement, technology, politics, and how entrepreneurship fits into the public safety space. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics, or you're looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, which we always appreciate, we've got the episode categories, and those can be found at futurized.org slash episodes. These are collections of your favorite episodes, organized by topic. The host of this podcast, Thun Anne Unheim, is the author of Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, and Leadership from Below. For an overview, go to transbooks at trondentime.com slash books. At this stage, Futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors. To check them out, go to uh, futurize.org slash sponsors. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurize.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations uh, that matter to the future. I hope you can also leave a positive review on iTunes or in your favorite podcast player. It really matters to the future of this podcast. Thanks so much. Let's begin. Rahul, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to to hear about your career and what you've uh, made of policing. It's it's a kind of an atypical police uh, career that you're fashioning for yourself. Yeah, I think atypical is certainly a word for it. <laughs> But so you you've spent uh, a decade in public safety, and then uh, you know that that part I guess is not so untraditional. Working as a paramedic and and kind of d- doing a little bit on the health side, but then you have also been a police officer various parts of the U.S. Um, but but I guess that's where the atypical uh, starts, right? Because you have well, you have a, a bachelor's degree in emergency medicine. That's perhaps not your typical police officer right there. And then you have some web design in there. Um, and then things start getting different. What, uh, what changed? What, uh, why are you not out on the streets? Well, if you, if you ask anybody in public safety, uh, police or fire, they'll tell you the most atypical aspect of my career is that I started on the fire and EMS side and chose to become a cop because typically it goes the other way. Cops decide, I don't want to do this job anymore. Firefighters seem like they're just hanging out and barbecuing all day. I'd rather do that and they jump over. So I'm like one of, you know, a hundred that make a transition that, that go in that direction. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, look, I, I think I've always had two tracks in my life, public safety being one of them. Um, you know, I was really into public service. My, my, I come from a military family and, and uh, a family of, folks who have you know given back to the community you know on the on the city side as well and and um 
that's always appealed to me since I was a kid. At the same time, technology has always been uh, the, at the forefront of my mind. I had a, you know, when I was a kid, about 14 years old, my buddy and I kind of built a little video game. Uh, that was our first foray into technology. Then I had a little startup in high school that helped pay my way through college in digital currency before Bitcoin existed. Um, and then I just kept going on from there. So those two tracks evolved independently uh, until about 2014. Um, I had left being a full-time police officer in the Los Angeles area uh, and started a research project called SPIDER. Uh, the acronym was Specialized Police Intelligence and Data Resource. And the idea there was that we we're going to try and get a better sense of the data that exists within, uh, you know, policing databases and how it can be used for more than just catching bad guys. You know, there's so much more to policing than that. Um, and that eventually turned into a company, Spider Tech, in 2015, uh, with the main focus being customer service. Basically, built the world's first automated customer service platform for public safety, and we went from there. So you call it customer uh, service, but it's also about community relationships, right? So customers in in sort of in the police context is is sort of interesting because most people just uh, don't think of it, I guess, in, in even in that in those terms. Yeah, that's a, it's, I mean, it's a good distinction. Customer service I, policing is essentially a customer service organization. It's a service organization, and it has customers. Um, you know, when we think of customers within policing, we think of like primary, secondary, in, in the sense that. People who are calling the police for help, your 911 callers, your crime victims, um, they're literally requesting a service at that moment. It could be the matter of life and death for them. Uh, there's a transaction that is occurring between them and the police department, the sheriff's department. Um, and they're what we consider primary. They're the ones that you want to make sure that you, you 100% uh, the bare bones, you can respond to a request from the community to be able to, you know, uh, for now one call or something like that. Then you have secondary customers. Also customers, also very important, um, but they're not requesting service. So your secondary customers are when you get pulled over by the police and, you you know, you're, you're they're, they might even write you a ticket. You didn't necessarily ask for that, but you're paying, if you're a taxpaying citizen, you're paying for that service. So essentially you're still a customer, whether you're being arrested, whether you're a witness to a crime, these things where you might not have called um, and, and gone through a process like that. So, that's how we see the customer landscape within policing. Uh, then you also have tertiary customers who are people who you don't, you know, have not, um, you know, had any contact with uh, that might not have called out one, have never been pulled over. They just live in the community, but they're still paying for the services and they're hoping, you know, that one day if they need you, uh, you'll you'll show up and provide, provide them the service. And the way we kind of connected customer service and community or perception of the, you know, public perceptions, the way we look at it, when I was hired as a police officer, my chief had told me what we have here is a bank of goodwill with the community. And every time an employee, a police officer or otherwise, goes and has a positive interaction with the community, they make a deposit into that bank account. Because no matter what, the most perfect agency in the, in the country is going to have a withdrawal at some point, And you have to hope you have enough in that bank account to cash that check. And so I th we thought about it this way and we realized that interactions between police employees and the community members are essentially ground zero for public perception. When something goes wrong, it happens because of an interaction. And that might, you know, you might play a game of telephone where the media says one way, the social media says it the other way, the police department says it one way, but it, interaction was ground zero for that. And so we based the idea of improving community relationships around improving, optimizing, and being able to measure those interactions over time. You know, it's interesting. Every discussion about policing turns uh, kind of personal in the sense that whoever's discussing it, you know, ref will reflect back on their own experience. And, you know, I've traveled uh, around a lot and I've seen a lot of different 
police forces, I guess. Uh, but it, it also strikes me that um, I think, for, certainly for me, I don't have one opinion of what the police is or should uh, you know look like, right? And and it also it, it just depends on your most recent experience. So I I might have had like one idea about how I thought this you know world is is moving, and then you move to a new town and it's completely different. Right. So it's not just, <clears throat> you know, it's actually the last touch point with that organization or, you know, you, you the awareness that, okay, I'm in my hometown, I trust this or I don't trust this particular police department for all of these reasons. It's just very interesting and it's almost, it's like visceral reactions. It's not something that, you know, you. it's not like I read a paper and I think I can trust the police. It's This is based on the touch points that you, every individual has had. Yeah, I think I, I think humans are generally wired to base their opinions on their own anecdotal experiences. Um, I don't think humans are naturally wired to look at large data sets and and come up with rational thoughts based on the statistics of what they're absorbing. I think it's I've interacted with one cop my whole life; it went poorly. Now I don't like the cops. I think that is a much more common, uh, you know, basically way to think about it. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the way that we're wired. So tell me a little bit more about this idea around spider tech. So uh, is it a so it's a technology platform for communicating with the public that you offer to police forces so they can what uh, send messages or that uh, the public can send messages and and then they'll be received in a much more efficient way than a than a call or or is it a well, integration? So the best way to think about it. The best way to think about it is, I mean, let me ask you this: When's the last time you bought something online, you personally? Um, probably yesterday. What like would you buy it on Amazon or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Typically, when you buy something from Amazon or any of these other websites, you're going to get an email or text message same day that says, "Here's here are all the items you bought. Click here to track your order. And additional messages: your items shipped, your items delivered, and they're going to send you surveys to determine how you felt about the item, how you feel about the service, so they can utilize that information to improve their operations, et cetera, et cetera." Um, they do all of that, these companies, through an automated customer service platform, and we built that type of platform for public safety. So wow. to kind of put it into the terms, uh, public safety terms, if you were to call 911 in any of our jurisdictions, the moment you hang up the phone, you get a text that says, hey, you called 911, here's your call for service number, here's what to expect, you know, an officer's on the way, firefighters are on their way, whatever the circumstances are. Um, then, you know, when when if there's a delay, it'll let you know. If, if an officer, for example, takes a police report, you'll get another message. Hey, a police report's been filed. Here's what you need to send to your insurance company. Here's all the information you need to know. Here's the officer who took it, uh, report number, et cetera, et cetera. And then continuous updates. A detective has been assigned. A case has been closed pending further evidence or sent to the DA. An arrest has been made. Those types of notifications. Now, throughout the entire process, the system is also sending out surveys saying, hey, how is your interaction with the police officer? How's your interaction with the dis- dispatcher, the, you know, the, the firefighter, whatever the circumstances are, so that those agencies can then use that, that, that feedback to, number one, better identify any liabilities before they become major issues, but number two, to be able to use positive reinforcement to improve and eventually change some of these policing cultures. Um, you know, we have over 60 different agencies across North America today, major cities like Seattle and San Antonio, Tucson, uh, Madison, you know, upcoming with Albuquerque, a few other folks like that. And um, we have smaller cities as well. But what I'll tell you is when, when officers are, are, you know, before spider tech existed, when they're the data that they're being measured to is essentially their performance data is basically 
Um, you know, how many stops do they make? How many citations do they write? How many arrests do they make? It's all you know this type of proactive data that's based on you know what they're doing. Uh, then that's the kind of copy you can get. Once you start measuring how many positive survey responses someone got and, and their customer service capabilities, then you're going to get a different way to measure for success. And if you can reward based off of those measurements, you change the culture within the organization. And so, ha- have some of the organizations been able to do that to to change absolutely. the Absolutely, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Based on on what they've said, uh, the, the score's going up. And I can tell you right now, I'm still a reserve officer for one of our customers. So sometimes I'll sit in briefing in the morning and officers will go, hey, did I get any spider tech survey responses? They'll ask the sergeant. They won't ask me. They'll ask the sergeant. Sarge, did I get any uh, survey responses? And the Sarge goes, oh, no, you didn't. Or yeah, you did. This person said you were really polite when you you know met with them. And they eat that stuff up, man. Because everybody, it doesn't matter if you're a cop or anyone in any other organization, you thrive typically on this type of positive reinforcement. It makes you feel good, so you chase it. You gotta, so if you gamify a little bit, you end up making it a better, uh, you know, better place for the community. Right. Well, when you speak about it this way, it's shocking to me that all, that we don't see this in all police forces, and that we haven't seen it for ten, you know, for ten years already. Mm-hmm. Like the way you speak about it now, it sounds so commonplace that it's like any successful organization would have implemented this. Decades ago, I mean, we definitely see it as an inevitability. Um, there's definitely an "I was blind and now I can see" moment for chiefs and sheriffs that implement it, where previously they didn't know what was happening, and now they felt like, "Oh, now I have a better understanding." Um, and I think you know that that's one aspect of it is just the survey capability. But sending out these automated communications, you you got to understand that we talk about the future future of technology. In the last 10 years, consumer expectations for, for customer service have steadily increased considerably. If you know, you when you called for a taxi, you know, over 10 years ago, you didn't know when that taxi was coming. You had to sit there 20 minutes later, call the customer service line, and they'd be like, I don't know. And that's the best you got. Now you call for an Uber, you know exactly where it is. If you ordered a pizza on Domino's or, or called Domino's, same thing. Now you go to the Domino's app, you see where it is. If you ordered something online, uh, well, luckily e-commerce has always kind of started with that process, but that has only gotten better over time. So this is what the consumer expectation has become, and it's only going to get more and more uh, intense with what, what consumers expect, which is totally fine. But then you have organizations, typically government organizations, that have not invested in the types of technologies to be able to meet those expectations. Well, let's talk about some of the heavier stuff because this mm-hmm. is actually wonderful and it actually makes ro- a lot of rational sense. But the complexity of policing our society is such that there's all kinds of sentiments out there. And you, you know, because you've been uh, commenting on them in various fora, right? There are scandals to talk about. And, and there's, it seems like there's a scandal every day. If you like look globally, you can find something to talk about having to do with the police, you know, fairly or unfairly. And there are obviously, you know, evolving threats of various kinds that also kind of keep the police in the media. That's obviously kind of bread and butter stuff. So it's not just smaller things, but it's like bigger threats that that the entire communities care about. Um, and then you have these social movements that, uh, you know, react to to some of the uh, perhaps successes that have happened either inside of police forces or things that sort of come up after a little bit of digging. How in this context can policing evolve in the next decade? So is it as simple as to say, you know, we're going to implement some uh, customer service technology so that uh, we are all friends and we communicate a little better? Or are there 
what are kind of large scale uh, opportunities and challenges in this in this landscape? I mean, am I right that there are uh, there are a lot of things coming your way when you're when you're a police uh, system, whether you're operating locally or or at the national level? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely. You're, you're totally right. Uh, policing um, is changing at a rapid pace. Uh, some of the changes are, I think, very welcomed by police departments. Some are not very welcome. Some are pragmatic. Some are not. Um, some are thoughtful and some are not. And and being able to differentiate between those uh, can often be difficult. Um, you know, you mentioned it's customer service technology, you know, a big part of the change. I wouldn't, I would say it's a part of the change. In fact, I would say technology itself is only a part of the change because with the future of policing, just like the future of most things, um, with policing, I look at three different things, uh, the people, the policies and the technology, and what is the future of those things? Cause each one of those categories has a role to play to usher in that future, but to get a sense of you know, what the future is going to look like. I think generally we have to get a sense. First, we have to determine what is it that we want the future to look like, right? And I think that can be different to a lot of people. Um, you have some folks uh, that, you know, believe in abolition, completely abolish the police. It's a small fraction, but it's some folks that believe completely abolishing the police and replacing it entirely is one way to go. Uh, then some folks who I'd say step below that would be like defunding the police. And that by itself, by definition, has been constantly changed. When I say defunding the police, I'm literally meaning you're taking money from what would go to the police budget and then giving it to something else. And it could be to great things like you know community um, uh, investment, you know, into neighborhoods, education, things that we def definitely need. I'm not saying that that's not um, you know something we need, but that is one aspect of it is defunding. And then you have some folks that don't want to defund or um, you know take any money away from the police, but uh, they want to institute policies and, and change some of the expectations. Um, which I think is also somewhat reasonable depending on, on you know, the approach to those policies. And then you have some folks who want to go the other direction, and that is to increase funding for the police. Now, I would even say that last group is in two different camps. You have folks who want to increase funding for the police um, because they don't believe there are any problems, and the only thing they care about is what they can perceive to be safety. So you want to keep you know, giving as much money to the police as possible um, because they don't think anything's wrong and they want to stay, feel safe. And then you have folks that want to increase funding to the police because they believe things are wrong uh, in, in some capacity. And in order to improve those things, you actually have to increase the funding. I would actually say, in although I understand where people are coming from for all four camps, I am definitely in the latter, where I believe there are issues, but I believe that the vast majority, if not all of these issues, uh, require more funding. And I, I can kind of get into where I see the technology going, the policies going, and the people going, but I wanted to at least lay out that landscape. Yeah, and, and earlier you called it kind of the pragmatic approach. So so if you if we take these three sort of, uh, and turn them into kind of scenarios, right? So if you think about a, a future where, an ideal future uh, for some people, some activists, and they're, they're saying, yeah, I mean, in an ideal society, there's there is no police. Because mm -hmm. we don't need police, or mm -hmm. because the function uh, that police has played in the last, call it fifty years, or or a hundred in some cases, has just been negative for society. We we got to get rid of it. The, the function doesn't, you know, it's not that it's not needed, but there are better ways to solve our security problems. And you know, the guns are not the you know, and violence by a system systematic force over you know citizens is not not the answer. I mean, is there any future by which this realistically um, can happen? Uh, 
Well, I mean, I, first, I would agree that that is the ideal circumstance, is that we don't need the police. I think um, everyone would agree that if we could live in a world where we just didn't need um, you know, police intervention in any capacity, everybody was safe, nobody harmed each other, no one wronged each other in that context, um, I, I would think that would be great. And if, if the problems were you know, um, small enough or less frequent or you know, infrequent enough or those things where we could choose an alternative community-based model, I think that would also be probably a better future. I just... Uh, because you I, agree I with the sense that, Raul, that, I mean, so you do agree that it's net negative when, you know, a, a force, uniformed force, could have is exerting violence against you as, even as an individual, but certainly even worse, if, if it is systematically exerted more against a certain group, that, that does foster negative emotions over time that are really hard, regardless what technology you're using to, to kind of show that it is fair in the end or whatever. It is very hard to, to swallow that kind of thing in a community that feels like they are being unfairly targeted. So you could completely understand, I guess, the vision of hoping that society could go there. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree that in any, any force that is unfairly targeting a community, genuinely unfairly targeting a community, um, is not a good thing. I mean, that, that, of course, I would not want to move towards a future in which that was more prevalent or prevalent in any capacity. And I would want to move to a future in which that is not particularly prevalent at all. Um, I, I think that my, what, what I'm suggesting is, is less about the reaction, more about um, the actual outcome itself. I mean, living in a society in which we didn't need protectors like this, we didn't need folks that had to get involved, uh, would be the ideal thing. I just don't believe that's the case. I think for you know centuries, I'm not talking about you know people look at policing as an American invention quite often. Um, the idea that policing was you know a born you know in America and specifically. Um, uh, to to you know combat runaway slaves, uh, which by the way, to, to a certain extent, um, there is history that shows that there were runaway slave patrols. So I'm not saying that didn't exist, but the concept of policing itself has been going on for centuries, if not millennia. The idea that we have a certain amount of people in a village uh, that are designed uh, that are there to protect us from the outside, from anyone who chooses to do us harm, but also protect us from ourselves, for people on the inside who do, you know, intend to do us harm. Uh, the idea that we've had laws and then enforcers of those laws, that has gone back for a very long time. So although I believe that it would be great if we didn't have to have those things, I do believe that we live in a world where we will need to have those things. And I think that if we want to make changes to our world um, where we Hope you know we're making changes towards not having to have those things, protectors and folks like the police. I'm all for that. I think that takes a very, very long time. I'm not talking about years. I'm not even talking about generations. I'm talking about decades and decades and even centuries to get to a point like that. And we have to be intellectually honest about um, what we can remove in the meantime and where we invest uh, in the meantime as well. Because people think that the concept of defunding, like you can go to a city, immediately take you know, 10, 20%, 30% away from the police department uh, and then put it into these communities and that, you know, you're not going to have these massive butterfly effects of increases in crime and things like that that are going to create a short-term problem. Um, you know, that, that's, that I, would, I would not agree with that approach. I would think you'd ha you have to basically increase funding in certain areas and you have to taper down as you're able to. And that's where I think there's a major disconnect. 
So let's take this uh, second scenario, and you know, you 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 pointed out that they can go in different directions, but you know, either way, you know, let's imagine a future, uh, you know, a decade that evolves towards increased funding, increased importance, and increased perhaps, uh, you know, violence uh, as a result. Maybe there is no, <clears throat> you know, in one camp they would say the more you increase the importance of the force, you know, the more sort of entitlement there's going to be in the force. You're sort of saying, no, <clears throat> the more appropriate resource. So let's handle that later. Sure. Let's look at this. <clears throat> and, and I had a question for you, which is, you know, police in sci-fi is always very brutal. Um, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to you to comment on that. What, what, where does that come from? Yeah, I mean, look, I know you and I talked about this in the past in terms of sci-fi specifically uh, and sci-fi writers are you know, well-renowned for how how much they think about the world's problems and, and how thoughtful their approach is to kind of painting the future. Even though it's fiction, it's still, uh, I would say, um, you know, very well thought and often kind of comes true in a lot of ways. Um, I think naturally there are a couple things at play. One, any good writer is going to have, you know, a, a, a tendency for drama because that creates a good story. And if you want to create tension and drama in a lot of these science fiction, um, you know, stories, you're going to have to create either antagonistic forces uh, that are very developed. And that's where you see this 1984 Orwellian type police force that like, or that's like the thought police and, 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 you know, minority report or, or 1984, these types of things where they're utilizing technology to enslave essentially a populace. Um, or you have sci-fi renditions that are more along the lines of um, the police being, uh, you know, very uh, so high tech that it's less that they're, enslaving the populace, but it's more that you can't get away with crimes like you were able to previously. Um, and then you have some renditions where um, they're, you know, like, I forgot there's that movie with Wesley Snipes, I believe, where uh, they live in a future where um, there isn't very much crime. And Wesley Snipes is like unfrozen uh, where he like, you know, he was a criminal from like, you know, the 90s. He's unfrozen and he starts killing people and the police have no idea how to deal with him. Uh, I remember they call it murder death kills in the in the in the movie, and then they have to unfreeze a cop from that time period <laughs> to deal with him too. So I've seen multiple renditions, and I think ultimately it comes down to you know creating a good story. Are the police the bad guys? If the police are the bad guys, then you have to kind of go down the the path of of you know what happens if the police force is continuously unchecked uh, and and like you said, you know continuously given this level of importance and we build ourselves into a policing society, not just because of the police, but more importantly, because of the government, the government gives the police more and more power, more and more unchecked capabilities until they become essentially the governing force, or at least an unbeatable arm of the government that is able to control everyone. If you, if, if your story is kind of under, under that particular thought, then you're going to dive into every technology that could have gotten the police to that point. Some that even exist today. And I think that's what you're talking about when you're talking about like a scary police force. You're thinking about police forces that have facial recognition capabilities that can know you're about to commit a crime before you can commit it with predictive policing. These are actually things that somewhat already exist today, um, but just don't have that capability yet. Right. And they, and they have to do with resourcing, but they have to do with another element that I wanted to ask you about, which is training. <clears throat> and this mm -hmm. is, you know, equally relevant, whether you're talking about training Afghan, uh, you know, security forces, whether they be military or police, and then now they're, you know, on the run or like for hire, or w w if it comes to just general law enforcement training, even in Western societies. I mean, th th what do you think of this? For example, there are books written and I'm hoping you have one of them 
authors on, on my podcast soon, talking about how serial killers are. Uh, there's certain statistics, at least, that would indicate that uh, you know there's a sort of uh, preponderance of, of of serial killers have some sort of touch points with law enforcement, meaning mm-hmm. they have received at some point some training. Mm-hmm. It's not that they're all police officers. I'm not saying that. But <clears throat> there is something there. There's at least this theory that if you have received some sort of law enforcement training at some point in the past, and then you know you go off on your own independently, not only are you trained so that you actually can execute serious events, uh, but you you might also have some additional sort of grudges against the system, and you can uh, perhaps pr- uh, you know you can prevail because you understand some of the habits of the police force mm-hmm. so you can evade uh, uh, obviously some of the most basic investigation techniques and things like that how much mm-hmm. is there to to that idea because if there is something yeah. to the idea then we should be very careful about who we're training yeah i mean look the, you you just brought up a lot of good points um and i believe absolutely there's something to that idea um there's i mean it, it doesn't surprise me right but the police are there's two things that they're they're trained in there's the ability to address violence and sometimes to be able to address violence, you have to overcome it with violence. So that's one aspect of it. Uh, By being a trained police officer, you become someone who builds a relationship and understanding of violence that can be used offensively just as it can be used defensively. Um, It's very difficult to train someone specifically only defensively because a lot of what makes a good defense in certain violent circumstances is a good offense. And so that's unavoidable in that circumstance. And that's not just hand-to-hand combat uh, where you're thinking about things like Krav and Jiu-Jitsu. That's also when it comes to firearms. Uh, You don't, you can't, you, know, you can train someone how to shoot somebody defensively if you're getting shot at, but ultimately you're sh- teaching someone how to get into a gunfight and how to win it. Uh, and I think those things are, are, are obviously unavoidable aspects of police training for as long as we ask the police officers to address any aspects of uh, you know, violence within the country. That's one side. The second side, um, you know, I think it's totally true. It's how law enforcement is able to invest and investigate sorry, and enforce laws. Uh, the processes and and the techniques in place. When you learn those things, uh, of course, you're probably more able to exploit that inf- information as well. Um, I know cops often joke that, like, you know, it, you, you I, I've often joked that when you learn how to, you know, how to respond to a bank robbery and everything that has to go with responding to a bank robbery, you immediately become. Uh, you know, someone who can rob a bank much better than anybody else because you know what it's going to take and and how, you know, what time of the day there's a shift change and and like, you know, what angles and how to do it in a way that's not only going to lessen your likelihood of getting caught, but going to make it much more difficult to prosecute you if you do get caught. And there are ways to learn that. There are ways where you just become an experienced criminal or you learn uh, what the opposing forces. Um, you know, you play cops and robbers as a kid whether you're playing robbers or cops, when you start playing cops, you realize how easy it is to get away from them sometimes and you you you, you, get, you become a better robber. So I think those things uh, are generally unavoidable. Now your point being, um, you know, we have to adequately train the right people so that they don't make that choice uh, is also well taken. And when I talk about the future and especially earlier when I was talking about um, you know, funding the police more so to solve for some of these problems. People and training is probably the most important thing. I, I, it's hard for me to think otherwise. And you're talking about, you know, um, there's fear that if you fund the police and you give them more importance that they use that money to become worse in some capacities. But it depends on how you use that money. 
Right now, the average police uh, officer in uh, the United States gets paid about $43,000 a year. Uh, as of last year, that was a statistic I pulled. It might have changed a little bit, so bear with me. Uh, but about $43,000 a year. Um, you're going to get what you pay for in a lot of circumstances. And right now, that's not the only issue. Retention and recruitment are two of the most difficult things uh, for a police department right now. Being able to retain people, people are leaving left and right. I just came back from a conference uh, where we discussed this with multiple major city chiefs where they're seeing – you know, uh, retention at the command staff level is almost three times as bad as it's ever been in the history of the United States. And that's the same at the line of level officer because the liability is so high that if you go out there and do the job as you're trained and as it's expected of you, that if the winds change down the line, you might be told you did something wrong and then you can lose your house, you can go to jail, you, or nothing bad happens to you, but that mob mentality hits and people find out where your family lives and people just don't want to do that for $43,000 a year. Um, and, and you've got at the same time you want, I believe we want all of our police officers to be empathetic individuals. Um, I think that's the most important thing, empathy for a position like this, not just in the sense of sympathizing in the way that people think about it, but also because tactical empathy makes you a better police officer, makes you a better detective, et cetera. Being naturally empathetic means that you're going to absorb all the emotions that you deal with on a daily basis from other people. And policing by itself is a lot of negativity, not just the fact that you're dealing with folks that, you know, in their worst circumstances, traffic collisions, kids getting hurt or even potentially killed, things like that. And you're absorbing that every day, but you're also also absorbing a lot of hate from the community that eats away at you. And this is another reason we're having retention and recruitment issues. People don't want to be hated. They don't want to do the job for that much. And, and, you know, as it's becoming even in some cases more dangerous, not in all cases. So training is another thing. I think there's a very good point that activists make constantly, which is that the police officers don't receive enough training. I completely agree. That is also a money issue. If we want our, our um, police officers to receive training similar to how much they're trained in, in the you know in Europe, uh, where we're you know we're talking about people getting almost close to law degrees, et cetera, we have to pay for that. We have to be able to pay for an officer to uh, you know first of all we have to be able to pay for the right people. If we want to increase the amount of money we're giving to folks, we'll get a higher quality you know uh, candidate more often than not. That's just like any other job in the country. Then when we get them when we train them, the longer we can train them for, the more effective they might be in the field. Uh, that means that if I'm going to train someone for an additional year before they go out in the field, I have to have enough you know, staffing coverage to keep that person in the academy for a year, then have to pay for that person to be trained for a year. These are all money issues. And I think these are inevitable. If you want better cops, you have to pay for better baseline cops and you have to pay for better training for those police officers. And ultimately at the end of this, you're going to have, like you said, a lessened likelihood that cops might go out there and do something that they're not supposed to, um, or, or, or that, that training goes in the wrong hands. Uh, you know, ultimately you just want better people to do the job. The more often, you know, the, the the more you can do that, the better off you'll be. So let's, uh, Ro, let's stretch your kind of pragmatic uh, scenario here for a bit, because you said, okay. you know, a little bit of more resources and then things will be better. You, you know, for fear of thinking that you think I grew up in La La Land, which maybe I did, but I come from a, I'm a country originally, Norway, where the, the police, at least until very recently, and certainly uh, outside of cities, did not have a general armed uh, force. Mm-hmm. So they, they would actually have to submit an application. It was sometimes just a phone call, but then paperwork had to be filed in order to actually take a police car out with a, with a firearm. Mm-hmm. Now, 
that maybe sounds pretty unrealistic in the United States, but what sort of, mm-hmm. uh, what would it take for the police, even with more resources, to go in that direction? I mean, would it just take more and better people and they would be so empathetic and then they would outnumber people, uh, you know, in a situation that we could go uh, towards that scenario? I'm just, I'm just saying, because a lot of people uh, who are critical to police what they really are complaining about is that people are dying. You know, they just don't want to see uh, police, you know, forget police violence. That's a whole other story. They did just, mm-hmm. you know, the collateral damage that happens in a shootout is just net negative. So is there mm-hmm. any scenario in your sort of pragmatic approach where there's either more resources, more technology, more empathy, more training, whatever it is, where we can go towards less use of actual uh, weapons that can kill, you know, so you're, which you're, also could, could could lead to collateral damage that wasn't even intended at all. Right. So you, you're referring to, um, you know, potentially police officers potentially being unarmed or far more unarmed than they are today. Um, so that lessens the likelihood for police related violence. Is yeah, I mean, it lessens the, exactly. But, you know, I, I think I'm making some assumptions about guns in the community as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort yeah. of asking so, you to sort of speculate on what would happen, what would have to happen on a societal level to the level of gun ownership or, or generally sort of de-escalation of that sort of situation before anything like that could even happen. Because, you know, the scenario A that we've been talking about, you know, abolishing police is actually far more, uh, extreme than what I'm talking about. But even what I'm talking right. about here seems pretty far-fetched in today's America. Right. Look, I, here's the thing. Um, if you, like, I, I agree that it would be great if the police officer didn't have to carry guns because the risk of them encountering a violent circumstance in which a firearm on their side would help them overcome that circumstance was so low that it didn't make sense. It, it, that, that risk then at that point outweighed statistically or in any capacity uh, the risk to the community for that officer having a gun. Um, we had 18,000 roughly, uh, I think it was actually just under 17,000 murders in the United States in uh, 2019, I believe it was. And we've had uh, over a 20 to 30% increase in murders since then. Um, so the United States has a, a murder problem. <laughs> Um, yeah. It absolutely does. I mean, it's not the worst country in the world when it comes to murders, not by a, a long shot, but it absolutely does. And we have uh, a culture in which um, there is a high prevalence of firearms, both legal and illegal. And in a um, um, you know short period of time, illegal firearms has actually increased with the ability to be able to 3D print guns uh, and create them out of thin air um, with uh, certain laws. Uh, like we, we've kind of shifted our, atten- uh, our attention away from enforcement to illegal guns and more towards uh, in- enforcement on the legal side uh, of registered you know, firearms and, and what you know, g- gun owners can do in that capacity. And so we've seen an increase, for example, um, a 3x increase in uh, uh, ghost guns is what they're referred to, unregistered firearms uh, being used in homicides in the last couple of years as we've shifted enforcement away from, from that. So uh, the United States has its own unique issues. I believe, you know, I was looking it up when you're talking to me, Norway, um, you know, it's a much smaller country, right? Uh, they have less than, I think, a um, 10% in terms of the murder rate. Uh, when I'm saying murder rate, I mean per 100,000. Uh, Norway's got about 0. 0.53 uh, murders per 100,000, and the U.S. has closer to about, at this stage, about eight uh, per 100,000. So 
the threat of violence in the United States, um, the threat of an officer walking up to a car and someone having a firearm in that car and deciding they don't want to listen to what that officer has to say is just much higher. Uh, you know, I often hear these um, arguments about, you know, smaller communities, whether it's Norway or Japan is another one where cops in Japan don't have guns. Why do the Americans need guns? Um, concept. And, and it's just, it's, it's tough. It's apples and oranges when you compare one culture uh, that over hundreds and hundreds of years uh, has has essentially eradicated the threat of gun violence and whether or not the cops there need guns. Because ultimately, if you want to be able to remove that, you need to be able to remove the threat. Or we can't ask people to go out there and risk their lives uh, if the threat of gun violence is so much higher. When we have how many police homicides happened uh, last year compared to how many homicides happened last year and how many gun-related homicides happened versus police-related homicides. When I say homicide, I'm not talking about murder. I'm talking about just a human killing another human being. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just it's so heavily weighted in direction uh, currently, and it might not in the future, we'll see, um, that it's too dangerous for an officer to do the job we're asking them to do without a firearm uh, with them at all times. Is there Has any force in the U.S. recently tested that theory? I have heard of certain like university police departments um, that have decided that they will, at least in some capacity, have unarmed patrols, et cetera. Uh, and I know some departments are um, yeah, have been kind of talking about doing it in some capacity. And there might be more that I, you know, are easy, it's either slipping my mind or I haven't heard about just yet. But it's, I mean, look, it, there's, it's a theory in the, in the way that evolution is a theory. I mean, we have the statistics in front of us in terms of how many guns are out there, uh, how many murders happen, how many shooting, how many shootings happen, how many traffic stops result in shootings, et cetera. So we know that information. If you just gave that information to somebody who was trying to be a police officer, uh, officer the first time and asked them if they're willing to do the job without a gun, uh, you know, you're going to, that retention and recruitment problem is going to get, far more difficult than it is today. Uh, and I, I'm afraid we wouldn't have enough folks out there that are willing to do the job. So you think that the uh, there's a productive uh, use of, uh, you know, firearms or, or even just a threat of firearms? Do you, is it the threat of firearms or the use of firearms that you actually think the, the police force is after? Well, it's, it's, the, it's the threat of firearms based on the use of firearms. Um, the, the likelihood... Of, of somebody having a firearm illegally in the United States is, is too high. I believe personally to ask an officer to go and enforce laws and interact with these people and try to take, take them to jail um, where that might be the last time they ever see the daylight because it's their third, you know, this is the, they've committed such a heinous crime that they don't want to go. And I think that ultimately we could probably get to, for example, a, a UK model eventually maybe where there are armed police and unarmed police out there and they're kind of doing different jobs. Uh, but I don't think that with the the gun prevalence in the country today that it would be realistic anytime soon. I think we'd have to make a lot of movements towards um, you know the, the just the prevalence of gun violence in, in, in America to be able to do anything like that. So let's talk about police community relationships more generally, Rahul, because uh, I, I mean, and that's uh, what Spider has has been doing. It, it does seem quite promising, and and I've seen other experiments, even without use of technology, where there are communities. Uh, for example, the, the town I live in now, Wellesley, Massachusetts. The, I would say that generally, people, meaning including my kids, have a very positive relationship to the police force. Why? Mm-hmm. 
because, uh, you know, they, they even are on first name basis with a particular police officer at any given moment who comes into the elementary school and is, you know, I, I, I you know, was watching her the other day. I was just dropping off my kid and there were people, including parents, taking photos, you know, w- with this officer. And, and, you know, this relationship has continued and it's a very strategic, I believe, relationship from the top level in, you know, in the police force. And I think it seems to, to be working now, you know, is this a high crime uh, city? No, it's a wealthy town in Massachusetts, right? So they can maybe afford to do so and it behooves them. But there is something to it. And that part has nothing to do with, uh, you know, guns or anything. It, it, it has to do with what we were starting to talk about, which was community relationship building. Uh, and I believe that that has a, uh, it, it has an interesting effect, actually, because I, I haven't been stopped many times for speeding, but I remember one time, and I was certainly not scared. And it's probably the only time when you're stopped by a police officer in your own hometown and you're you're sort of like it's a regular conversation you're having with whoever's stopping you and you you can reason with them they reason with you and and you you sort of feel like this is actually a conversation as opposed to this is some sort of enormous breach that we you know and i'm scared for my life um how do you create that on a more generalized basis on a larger scale in in places that you know probably have bigger problems than my, my hometown yeah, look, I think the United States is, um, you know, it, it has adopted a level of localism that I think is useful in most cases, but it's not perfect. And what I mean, what I mean by that is obviously you have the federal government, then you have the state government, then you have these municipalities, uh, cities, and counties that that kind of create their own rules and their own cultures with how they follow those rules and enforce them. And ultimately, each community, I believe, should and typically does have the ability to decide how they want to enforce those laws and what they want that culture to be. High crime communities, um, to, uh, it's just much more difficult. You, in high crime communities, you typically have less revenue to work with uh, from a tax standpoint. And so you have cops that are, you know, d- departments that are built on not having enough to be able to address those high crime areas. Uh, and then you have tense relationships with those communities. Because even if I'm not somebody who broke the law, um, I might be related to someone who, you know, uh, had a bad interaction with the police, justified or unjustified. You know, let's say it was a justified bad interaction in the sense that uh, they were arrested for something. Um, and, uh, you know, now I hate the cops because they arrested my friend or my brother or whatever the circumstances. Uh, or worse, let's say they were involved in a shooting uh, and the police shot that person. I, I would feel really, you know, negatively about that. And if it's unjustified, let's say, um, you know, the, the, the police officers are out there, you know, they, they stopped my, my brother because they thought he matched the description of, of someone that was similar wearing the same shirt, maybe even had the same skin color, was driving the same car. Um, you know, the more, the higher crime neighborhoods are going to have more and more of those circumstances, whether you're primary in, in terms of, I had a bad interaction or I know people have had bad interactions, then it becomes in the culture of those communities, um, that the police are, you know, preventing us from going about our business, and 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 we generally don't like the police. That becomes very, very difficult to change. And ultimately, departments there, and I see this. I've traveled the country for the last five years, going over a hundred different agencies and and learning from these communities. Um, departments there have to make a decision on what is it that my community generally wants. Like the chief has to go, what does my community want me to do? You'll have maybe. of the community, it says, hey, please solve for crime. We have 
so much, you know, we have drug dealers in the neighborhood. We have gangsters in the neighborhood. We have all these things. My car, I can't park it. I can't walk home at night. I need you. 70, 80, maybe even 90% of the community says that. And then you have 10, 20, 30% of the community says, you need to stop pulling people over. You need to stop doing this. You need to just, you know, uh, like basically stop responding to these types of crimes. We're too afraid of you, et cetera, et cetera. Do I decide as a police chief that I'm going to stop responding to certain things because 10, 20, 30% of the community feels this versus 70% of the community feeling this? Even if the entire community, let's let's remove uh, things like race out of it uh, and just say the entire community could be a completely homogenous population, you still have that 70, 20, 30, 10% problem. Do I make that decision is, is difficult. And if you do decide I'm going to pull back a little bit, you have to be okay with the idea that crime is going to increase and the majority, eventually that pendulum is going to swing. And the problem in the community, the, the people who are going to be louder in the city council meetings are people who are saying, I can't walk my child home. It's too unsafe now. And that pendulum swings back and forth and back and forth. And that ends up becoming an issue. To, in order to, you know, I think eventually repair those relationships, accountability and transparency are key. And I think those two are buzzwords and there's a way to use it. Showing that if, you know, show, leading by example and showing that if an officer truly does something bad, that officer is fully liable for their actions. They're held accountable for that. Every time that happens, you need to be able to build faith in that system. So you can separate an officer doing something bad versus an officer doing something they're supposed to do, but that person didn't like the outcome. You have to be able to separate that and build trust in the system. And you have to have transparency in how you do things. And part of that transparency is also education. Because ultimately, I can't tell you how often this happens and how many officers don't do this. But when you pull somebody over, you have the opportunity to educate them on certain things. When there's an incident that occurs that people go, oh, why didn't the officer tase this person? Why didn't they do that? You have the opportunity to educate the public and explain, this is how this go. This is how this happens. These are the limitations of a taser. This is why we do certain things the way we do them. The more you take the opportunity to educate the public and be transparent with the policies and the procedures and what, you know, if we change this, uh, then this is the outcome that could possibly happen. Are we okay with that? The more you involve the community's decisions, the more you're going to be able to build trust, even in high crime areas, where you're going to have a higher likelihood that you're going to have negative interactions. And so, in right. low crime areas, you don't have, it's just not as tense. You don't have, you know, nearly the same trade-offs uh, and, and, and the same issues. But Raul, you, you're sort of known as Silicon Valley's kind of expert on policing, but even you have to admit, and I, I think sort of that's what you're saying, that data doesn't solve everything. Even if you had perfect yeah. data, people are people. So you, you and I with the same set of data might, might have different opinions politically yes. or because of our life experience or our situation uh, or just our mood that day, right? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. there's a bell curve around every issue, regardless mm -hmm. if there's fair access to data and information. So I think there's the sense here that technology and data, even if you had the perfect sort of what you're calling customer data around policing, and even if we're talking about my peaceful hometown or we could be talking about a much more aggressive situation, you know, in, in another Boston neighborhood, something, you know, something like that. If you had perfect information, you would still have different opinions. Now, yeah. how do you deal with that? Well, I mean, look, I agree with you completely. Uh, data is essentially means to an end. You know, your data is a tool that you can use to make effective decisions, but it's not the only tool that should be used. Um, even with our... Our, you know, customer service data that we're providing to these agencies through through Spider Tech. Um, ultimately, what is the main thing? The main thing you're trying to do is 
change the culture of the organization and effectively manage the people to create better circumstances, uh, optimize those interactions, and then build better relationships with the community. You're trying to identify liabilities before they become true liabilities. You're trying to promote positive actors so that they will have a positive effect on the culture. Cultures within these agencies, within these communities, um, are typically the driving force of positive or negative momentum in, in the direction that that community or that organization is going. And data that's giving you touch points on those cultures and giving you the ability to positively impact those cultures is important. The data itself is just a tool to be able to do that. So we've talked a lot about the possible futures, and that's a safer ground to be on than talking about you know what you think you will predict for the future. But if, if you were to look at the next decade uh, and and you know, come back to me in 10 years, what do you think is likely to happen to topics like police reform, uh, the availability of advanced technology in the police force, and maybe even that question of mine about, you know, uh, to what degree police is going to be uh, armed and, and, and how armed they are going to be versus, you know, the uh, criminals that they're persecuting. Is, is the answer going to be in the future, this sci-fi police force with overwhelming force of technological nature, whether it's just pure firearms or the combination of training and some other technology, surveillance, drones, Lord knows what it, what it is. What is likely to happen even just within a decade? Where, where are we heading in America right now with given what's, what you see? Yeah. So I mean, I'll answer that second part first. Um, and this is just obviously my opinion, one man's opinion. Uh, I don't really prescribe to the idea that America is going to go in one extreme or the other. Um, I like to take more of a down the middle approach, and if you have you know one political camp that believes we're headed for you know dictatorial fascism in the sense that uh, you know on the far right where it's going to be you know very hate driven et cetera et cetera, and then you have the far left uh, and and people who believe be, based on those beliefs that we're headed towards this communist dictatorship that is very similar but you know is, is uh, essentially rooted in different. Um, uh, you know, philosophies politically, both of these circumstances would involve a militant police force, um, you know, basically reacting to the, the, the powers that be and those powers that be just simply have different objectives, although they both share this desire for power. I don't think that that happens in America personally. Um, I think what happens is we have a little bit of left, a little bit of right, and, you know, the pendulum swings a little bit. Sometimes it swings more, you know, uh, chaotically and sometimes it doesn't. Um, I think that hopefully we see more unification and a little bit more of a pragmatic and moderate approach to our politics eventually, because I believe that does impact policing. But that set aside, I think that the direction we're taking in policing in some cases is going to get worse before it gets better. Um, and I think that's an unfortunate pill that people have to swallow. Right now, if we're looking at the butterfly effects of last year, we are having a hard time hiring police officers. And so departments, in order to make their numbers, are having to reduce uh, or like kind of just take what they can get. We're having a negative, like we're it's going the wrong direction because it's so difficult to hire somebody. You either don't have the money to hire the right people, or people are just nobody wants to do this job. It's too high liability. They, they don't want to be hated, et cetera, et cetera. That problem is getting worse. So it's going to be difficult to hire good people for quite some time. And culturally, we're going to have to change and come to a more uh, you know, people are going to have to believe they can get into this job without being absolutely hated and they'll have the resources to be able to go home safe um, before we're going to get the right people. Now, I do believe that generation after generation, as, you know, upcoming generations take up 
uh, you know, uh, the, the, the badge and want to become police officers, they were going to be born into environments that are generally going to be more empathetic than previous generations were. I think that's just the human condition in a lot of ways. And I think that's going to create uh, police officers that are just more modern for the times. And we do need that. Uh, I just think it's going to be very difficult to be able to hire for that. Um, I think objectives are going to be different over time. I think we, you know, some communities are deciding, do we want police to prevent crime? Do we want them to simply stop crime as it's occurring? Or do we want them simply to allow crime to occur, but we want them to investigate afterwards? And if we want them to investigate afterwards, how deeply do we want to prosecute and punish versus um, rehabilitate and, and give someone resources? Those are different questions. And each community is going to, I think, go in separate directions to a certain extent. And uh, you're going to have some places that are going to guinea pig some of these approaches, which is what we need. We need people to do that. I often talk to officers who you know, will joke around about, oh, this community is doing something crazy. And my thought is good. Let's see if it works. If it works, great, we'll do it. If it doesn't, then we know it, you know, it might not be a great idea. And you know, that's going to happen over time. And we're going to start shaking towards probably more pragmatic approach. And there's just going to be certain victims that are going to be you know, maybe um, things that might not work, I should say, in certain communities. Uh, that would be the cost of that. But I think it, it, it's worth it. Um, culture changes as pop culture changes as well. Um, I think, you know, a, a, a generation growing up watching cops um, and and lots of, you know, movies, et cetera, that, that are just like, you know, cops are heroes, cops are heroes. Then you you decide, I want to be a hero, so I want to be a police officer. And that's I don't think that that's a bad reason to be a cop. There are worse reasons to be a cop out there. Um, as pop culture changes and paints police as the bad guys, um, you're going to have less people who want to do the right thing in life and then decide they want to be cops. So you're going to have less people who want to do the right thing and decide to be cops. Like that's just ultimately the way it works. Um, so I think some of these things are unfortunately going to get worse before they get better. I think policy, when it comes to the the political side of things, it does act like a pendulum. I think typically you have um, exploitation of voters on both sides of the aisle here, uh, which is just the issue with a, a two party system. Um, and you're going to have folks that are like on the left that are basically saying, "Oh yeah, we're totally going to do this police reform stuff," but then when they look at it, they go, "This is actually a nightmare." Uh, and they can't find a pragmatic approach. Some folks aren't really going to care about the pragmatic approach, and they're just going to go, yeah, let's just push this because that's what the voters want. And that is democracy manifest, so I'm not saying that's the wrong thing, but they might just push something without you know, the idea that this is something that the average person doesn't know enough about, and this policy might not be a good idea. And that is going to force the pendulum to swing if that doesn't work out. And you're going to have the same thing happening on the right, um, where there's going to be a lot of, of this isn't really as big of a problem and downplaying in some circumstances. Uh, and that's going to have the pendulum swing in those directions as well. Um, I think that naturally we will tend to focus on crimes that matter as the times progress. We're decriminalizing things like, for example, like marijuana. Um, you know, there was a terrible shooting in uh, Tucson, Arizona. Um, and I, you know, I've got a lot of friends over there at, at Tucson PD, and it was it was terrible. DA agent was shot and killed. Another DA agent was shot. Another Tucson police officer was shot. Um, this was, I believe, last week, and they just had the funeral um, for the DA agent, where it was over four pounds of of marijuana. And ultimately, we're going to decide if if these types of crimes are worth risking the lives of police officers in the community. Uh, and and I think decriminalizing certain things like that is going to make an impact. And I think the long term impact. And I'll, I'll end with this. Um, you know, before we talk about anything with technology, the long-term impact is going to be based off of how much we invest in the community. If there's one thing I, I want people to take away from this is that we have been fed this false equivalence that in order to invest in the community and, and make changes to prevent crime, 
uh, and and you know improve uh, you know uh, the outcomes of impoverished communities and education, all the things that we believe. I also believe reduce the likelihood of crime. We have to take it from the police department. Um, that's not true. That's just not true. Ultimately, we can take a balanced approach and invest in these things. And then, like I said, wean the resources of the police department off over time as we believe that we don't need these things anymore. But that is a patient and pragmatic approach that doesn't emotionally resonate with a lot of folks. Um, I just believe that's the direction we have to go. It's just going to be tough to sell that to everybody because you know everyone's just used to, we want to make a change now. We want everything to happen now. It just doesn't work that way. Um, look, and then I'll keep it simple from a technology standpoint. Less and less technology. Actually, I, I've been in the funding landscape for policing for the last six years. I'll tell you, dramatically, less and less money is being spent on technology that helps catch bad guys. In, in the simplest way of thinking about it, bad guys, people, criminals, whatever you want to re refer to it as. Um, it's less important. It still exists. Facial recognition uh, technology, people are afraid of. I'm not saying there aren't companies that are doing things that are in this space. I'm just saying it's less prevalent and less R&D dollars being spent on something like this. There's more money being spent on less lethal approaches to use of force. Um, there's more money being spent on, even in, in some cases, investigations, forensics. More importantly, things like community engagement, uh, customer service, and what can a police department invest in from a technology standpoint that will allow them to do uh, more with less because most departments are having to operate with less cops. So I think technology continues to go down in that direction uh, until the pendulum swings and the America thinks that the crime problem has gotten potentially bad and, and we start reinvesting in some of these other things. Bro, like, thank you. This is a complicated topic. And unlike many topics that I talk about, it doesn't seem optional. It's like this this topic touches police forces and the impact of, you know, going this, that, or the other direction touches all of us and each of us in our community. So thanks for enlightening us on, on, on your view and uh, congratulations on Spider Tech. Absolutely, Tron. Thank you for having me. You have just listened to episode 128 of the Futurize podcast with host Trondar Nuenheim, futurist and author. If you are interested in Tron's products or services, feel free to check out futurize.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of Tron's books, such as Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from Below. The topic on this podcast, 128, was the future of policing. And in this conversation, we talked about police reform, law enforcement technology, and the future outlook. My observation is that police reform is generally and nearly always a good idea, since any public institution that carries guns needs to be constantly scrutinized. The prospect of law enforcement technology somehow making society safer is a notion with mixed merit. Technology, as always, is a double-edged sword. What we gain in efficiency of force, we might lose in the time needed to process what occurred. However, it seems prudent to invest more in applications that lets the public and the police stay in constant dialogue to avoid one-way communication. The future of law enforcement surely includes technology and will require close oversight, both by the institutions themselves, by government, and by citizens. We are nowhere near a world with no need for police forces, but we all deserve a fair shake when we are confronted by it, whether for routine infractions or when causing events that threaten public safety. For that, technology will be involved and will increasingly become more sophisticated, although undoubtedly at times will be stuck in bureaucracy, for which we all need to practice our patience. Thanks for listening. 
If you like the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurize, such as episode 76, The Future of Risk and Resilience, episode 66, The Serendipity of Social Innovation, or episode 103, The Future of Freedom. Hopefully you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes, and if so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. Futurize is created in association with Yegi, the Insight Network. Yegi lets clients create multidisciplinary dream teams consisting of subject matter experts, academics, consultants, data scientists, and generalists as team leaders. Yegi's services include speeches, briefings, seminars, reports, and ongoing monitoring, and you can find Yegi at yegi.org. The Futurize team <coughs> consists of podcast host and sound technician Tron Denheim, videographer Raoul Edouard Dietrichrithan, and podcast marketer Nahin Israfil Hussein. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We have Futurize on LinkedIn and YouTube, and Futurize 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.